0: The B2B sales world is in turmoil. Quota attainment is down. Revenue growth is slowed. Turnover is up. All of this is in the face of ever-increasing pressure to perform. Is it a surprise that the average sales leader stays in place for only 12 to 18 months? That's barely enough time to start executing the strategy. These problems are fixable, and we are going to serve the sales leadership community with this show. I'm Lucas Price. I've launched and exited B2B startups and built elite sales organizations. Now I want to give back by bringing you this podcast, Building Elite Sales Teams. It will be full of actionable best practices to help you excel as a sales leader. We're going to burn the trim. Let's get back to winning. Building Elite Sales Teams is on. Welcome. This is Lucas Price, and I'm here again to learn with you about building elite sales teams. How do you find and enable the superpowers that each team member on your team has. That's one of the topics we're gonna be talking about today with Steve Waters from ZoomInfo. Just like me, Steve is from Nampa, Idaho. He has a bachelor's in music from the College of Idaho, an MBA from Northwest Nazarene University, and he spent nine years selling insurance, then three years recruiting students, and now eight and a half years at ZoomInfo. At ZoomInfo, Steve started as a sales development rep. He progressed to a senior SDR and then a commercial account executive, a senior account executive, a sales manager, a senior sales manager, a director, a senior director, then the, uh, the, the VP of sales for the West. He has a wife and two young girls. Steve, it sounds like you've had just about every job in the sales organization there at Zoom Info.
1: Thankfully not sales ops, and that's not my bag, but yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here and uh, great to meet you. It's fun to meet somebody from the neighborhood.
0: Yeah, what else should our audience know about you and your background?
1: <laughs> I think it's just the liberal arts education Going to the College of Idaho, it's 800 students. So I got to know every professor and every other student. And that was a place where I really thrived and took that. And it's helped me be able to relate to a variety of people on a variety of issues and different topics. And that helps sales. You can be a a chameleon and try to meet people where they're at in terms of their communication style and what they're interested in and and everything else. In the current role, we have about 70 account executives, about 10 managers, and then two directors. So it's a pretty big org. And I think the only other things are Discover org, acquired Zoom Info, rebranded as them. We IPO'd in June of 2020 and then made 14 acquisitions in the past decade. So it's uh, a lot that we're going through here, but always fun. And the only constant is change over here.
0: Yeah, I bet. I'm curious about the the music degree. I, I have a friend who is a professional piano player, and I always tell people that he's the most entrepreneurial person that I know because... He has, he has so many different things and gigs and companies going on in order to make a living as a professional piano player. I know that's not quite your circumstance, but I'm curious, is there a connection between a music degree and sales?
1: I'm not sure there's something special happening. Certainly. I remember I was pre-med before I fell in love with an upperclassman and I graduated a year early, which was a mistake and switched from pre-med to just general music. But yeah, I, I remember at the time I graduated from college in 2004. The number one major accepted the med school was music because it, it's tough to differentiate yourself when it's biology and chemistry and physics and all of those kinds of things. But I think there's uh, something ha- special that happens with creativity and 80% of musicians that I know constantly show up late and everything's a mess and their car is just full of junk and they can't really tell their rear end from their elbow in terms of being able to stay organized. But The 20% that can, I think, can leverage a lot of that creativity to see the world differently and try to solve problems in some creative ways. And You also have to be able to manage personalities. If you've ever been in a band, it's like having three or four spouses, depending on the size of the band and all the really heavy personalities and egos. And that helps you can work with that group, you can, you know, calm down a, an upset procurement team or a, or a prospect that's concerned. So yeah, I'm not sure about the connection between music and entrepreneurship. It's probably just the creativity that you practice constantly and, and flex that muscle whenever you can, is what I'd probably guess.
0: One of the things that we hear a lot from guests, and you see this on LinkedIn a lot as well, is that the people who are successful in sales, they had a certain determination. And We're always looking for the candidates that have the determination where they're gonna push through the obstacles that you're inevitably going to face in sales. For you, you've obviously been very successful through your sales career, constantly promoted until you were in management and now in in executive leadership. What, where did that determination come from for you?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like I didn't have any skills when I graduated from college and I was like very concerned about the, my potential to be successful. And my father worked in the insurance business. He owned Jim Waters Insurance. there on 12th Avenue across from the rec center in Nipah. And it yeah. was really good to my family. And so I thought, my dad said, if you can spell insurance, you can do it. And I know I liked people. I knew I was extroverted. And so I just tried that out and I sold final expense insurance where it was like burial insurance for seniors. They didn't want to be a burden to their families, like little $10,000 whole life policies. And I would travel all around the state of Idaho and meet with people in their trailers or in their homes and try to convince them to spend 40 to a month on these policies. And it was like, it was the only thing, it was like the only option. And then the thing that was so attractive about it is I realized that the harder I worked, the more successful I could be. And Once I realized that, then it was just like the world was my oyster. It wasn't until I got to discover org, which is now zoom info that I really started to figure out sales. I floundered for those first, I was okay, but. Once I realized that I could be really competitive with the team here, then I knew that the money would come, all the rewards. So I just figured, Hey, I'm going to pick three to five people on the sales team and always try to beat them every month. And they knew that I was going to beat them. And it was a, a friendly thing. We thought the real competition is outside of these walls. It's not within the team that said, if you can be the best, all the financial rewards and the equity and everything else will come with it. And that was. My North star coming in, there have been people here that had been here one to seven years earlier than I had. and One of the reps had sold Google and I couldn't sell them again. And so coming in as the new guy, I was a real chip on my shoulder thinking I can beat these people and then learning from what they were doing. That was what made me so determined to be successful and different people have different things that motivate them. But for me, I knew that if I could beat some of the top reps, That it would encourage them to be better, but then also I would get all the financial rewards, which is what motivates more most salespeople.
0: Do you think that there's a discipline that came from music as well that allowed you to be like, hey, I get better at this by having this discipline, by practicing, and and the realization that you can get better at something?
1: Yeah, I thought about it more just in the past few minutes. And I think it's, for me, the skill that was so valuable was I played a whole lot of every style of music, but a lot of jazz in college. And I played drums and then sang in the vocal jazz group and drums are like my main thing. And I had this thing in high school where people would say, transcribe these great jazz musicians, like transcribe John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, whoever, and write down what they're doing. And then learn it note for note. And when I was in high school, I thought that's going to reduce your creativity if you're just playing like someone else, that's not your voice, that's someone else's. And then my good friend, Camden Hughes, who's also from Neopolis, uh, set me straight. And he's, if you think that you're going to learn a few solos with Charlie Parkers and sound just like him, you're crazy. And that applies to sales because we record our calls. We use chorus.ai that ZoomInfo owns, right? It's uh, one of the market leaders, it competes with Gong, right. and a bunch of others for conversational intelligence. And we use that religiously. And what I would do is I would learn the style or the licks, the phrases that people would have on the sales team and then emulate that. And so just like drum fills or just like different beats that I could play that I could pull out in different musical situations. I could have a musical vocabulary. I could have an actual sales vocabulary for when I get this objection, I could sound like one of my mentors, Stephen Werke, or when I would tell the story of what makes us different than our competitors, I would channel the way that Patrick Purvis talked about that, was our VP of sales, or there were ways that I could be my authentic self, like a uh, Cole Huey on the team and push like a uh, Jake Chaffron. So it was like I could take all these different styles and fills of the drummers that I looked up to and go into Stuart Copeland mode or John Bonham mode or Travis Barker mode or whatever it was. And I think that skill set for music. Yeah. It's obvious that you can get better at something you practice and try to get 1% better every day, which is one of the mantras here at Zoom Info, is the cumulative effects of getting 1% better every day is really mind boggling when you start to add it up. Yep. But I think it's more emulating other people and their styles and then say, okay, if I can do that and take what they do and add it to my own game, sometimes I try it and I fall on my face. Other times I try it and I go, oh, I really like that. That helped me sell. And then that kept it new and fresh if every sales call i would try a different talk track or a slightly different question or a different way to handle an objection or a different way to differentiate us that kept me interested just like in jazz it's different every time so yeah i think that's more directly how music impacts my background music impacts my ability to be an individual seller totally different as a manager But as a seller, learning my own voice and my own chops and everything else, that was a really valuable thing that I went through.
0: You mentioned that when you first started in sales for the first, I can't remember how long you said, but the first few years, you struggled a bit. I think that's something that is recurs on with our guests here is that the ones who rose up into leadership, oftentimes we hear from them that they initially struggled in sales. Is there a connection between struggling and sales and what you have to go through in terms of building that determination, building that growth, and then being able to teach it where it makes you a better leader when you initially struggled?
1: Maybe, you know, and I know that I said that I was good at selling final expense, uh, but then I also struggled. It was like, I was good at it compared to some of the other people that did it. And I liked it. I think it was the fact that I was selling insurance. And the more you learn about that, the less you like it. And that's me being really intellectually curious. I wanted to know everything about the policies and the language and why companies didn't pay. And when I went to work for my father's agency, the, how the auto insurance policies work or why homeowners insurance policies exclude certain things. And the more I would learn, the more frustrated I would get. And then I remember watching this interview with Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the guys from South Park, and they were like, yeah, you don't want to be cool in high school. Cause the people who are cool at high school are now like selling insurance or something lame. I thought, oh no, that's me like insurance <laughs> and. I loved working at the Art Institute of Portland and being a part of that team. It was just really poorly managed from the nationals down to the individual locations. And it was all the pressure of sales without the rewards. And you didn't make commission recruiting students. That would be unethical, I think. So it was like sales. I still consider it a sales job. And that and You were selling the college, trying to get these students that could go to a different school to go somewhere else. But it wasn't really until I came here where we're technology enabled. I was like, oh my God, we have Salesforce. This is so incredible. I and mean, we have Google Calendar. This is amazing. And all these things that then I realized that, oh, okay. I'm part of a team of smart people that work really hard and iron sharpens iron here. And that's when I really started to get my stride and, and be successful. It was I had worked at places where you hear, oh, is it five o'clock yet? And we're working hard or hardly working. And and here Everyone took it so seriously. We were having fun, but it was also like everyone wanted to be the best. Everyone wanted to be a master of their craft. And if there are smart people that work hard and just get after it every day, it's going to solve every problem or like 90% of the problems that we have. And that culture is where I thrived. So it wasn't necessarily that sales was something that I wasn't good at. It was just finding a culture where I feel like I found my tribe and I found people I really fit in with. And where the system was set up that the harder you were the more successful you are, the more money you make, and, and then the options to promote and the growth and external funding and all that stuff. But so it just seemed like once that aligned, it all made sense to me and I could be a really good individual seller then in terms of being a manager. I floundered a lot, but I eventually figured out how to do that.
0: Now you're an accomplished manager. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way? One of the biggest
1: lessons I learned early on was I thought I had to know all the answers to everyone's questions all the time. And I thought I had to be this expert that they had to come to and I would just be the man and have the responses right away. And that no one's going to have all the answers to every different thing. One of the joys of being in sales, sales is you never know what our prospects are going to say. They say the wackiest stuff, right? And uh, you come across these different problems. And so for me to go in thinking that I have to have all the answers so people would respect me, just set me up for total failure. And I started to realize that just like when we respond to objections as salespeople, the best way to respond is a question. Typically when one of the salespeople that reported to me, when they would come to me, it was some big problem. I could ask them a question. Okay. So what are you doing to solve that? Or what does the data say? Or what things have you tried and why didn't they work? I don't have to have the answers. I can just turn around. And most of the time, that individual seller is going to have as good or better an answer as I would. And I can guide them along. Naturally, I have their respect because I've done it and I've thrived in the role. But that was one of the things that I learned that was a big mistake. It just set me up to not be successful when I manage a sales team for the first time. But I think that The most valuable thing, it's what you opened the conversation with, is this concept of superpowers and like strengths that the the reps have. And it doesn't really matter if it's a team of five sellers or it's a team of 50 sellers, we're going to have people that are really good at certain parts of the sales process, so really good at prospecting or they sound really good on the phone, people that write really good follow-ups, people that have a, a good system for their pipeline, those that tell the story of the company really well, those that handle objections, those that can create urgency and close in a way, those can get people to commit to larger deals, to longer term agreements. Those are all like specific skills that people have that in the same way that I would listen to my favorite drummers or my favorite jazz musicians and emulate them, the, the trick that I learned or the technique that I learned across the team is to take the reps that are really good at one of those things, then recognize them publicly for that thing and make sure that the data shows that, that they actually, their win rate is high or their ASP is high or whatever it is that we're trying to, to teach the team that they actually do really great discovery. And then I recognize them publicly in Slack or in the team meetings or via email. And then I ask that individual rep to teach the team. What they're really good at. And that does two main lifts. The first lift is that rep gets this shot of confidence and of good serotonin and dopamine and all that stuff. And they feel really good about themselves and they carry that confidence into their next call. And Lucas, I don't have to tell you how important confidence is in sales, right? But it's very obviously, right? Confidence is probably the most important thing. It's how you say something. And I've heard sales referred to as the transfer of enthusiasm from one party to another. And while I don't think that's a hundred percent true, there's a lot there. And the confidence is a big part of that. So publicly praising someone and then making them the resident expert for that thing, gives them a lot of confidence and they actually get better at that thing. The second thing that it does is it challenges the rest of the team to get as good at that rep is, or at least get better at that aspect of sales because they can see it done in a really incredible way, like at a very high level. And if I can teach the rest of my team to create urgency and to be able to close or to be able to present pricing in a really telling way, like my best sellers, then I can like Mr. Potato head together the best sellers with this person's urgency and this person's discovery and this person's storytelling and this person's conviction and. Everyone can get better. The third thing that it does, that's probably least important, but still valuable is they don't have to hear me talk every time that it's this variety of a second voice of different perspectives on what we're doing every day. And it keeps it interesting because the last thing they want to hear is me tell the same stories or solve problems in the same way. So doing that on a repeated basis and then running a call coaching session every Friday at three o'clock to recognize those skills, invite that rip. I interview them and ask them questions and the team can ask questions. Just such a, a really important way to sharpen the skills of the team in all the different aspects and improve their stats uh, as they try to get better at the selling process.
0: I love that. My wife went to optometry school and she said at the medical school where she went, the philosophy was see one, do one, teach one. And, and that's how you'd learn a new skill is by teaching it to others. And so it sounds like that's a part of what you're doing there as well, which I love. So are you going out and looking for, all right, what's the one thing that this seller is better at than everyone else? Or is that, d- does that sort of just bubble up and become obvious and you just highlight the people who are obviously the best at it or? What's the process to identify those people that should be doing that?
1: The variety of tools that we use at Zoom Info, we sell data and, you know, and operating system. And so we're very data driven and that shouldn't surprise anyone. So we get these scorecards every month and then we have these tableau dashes and we have so much data that shows who's the best at selling. We have a good, better, best product. Who's the best at selling the best version of that product? Okay, that's this rep. Then I go look at the recordings in Chorus, or I see if the stats from Chorus will help me understand why that is. And then I'll just ask the rep. It all starts with data. I look at what's going right and what's going wrong on the team as I constantly monitor the data, when I see that there are things going wrong, then I think, okay, what inputs contribute to that? Are we not self-prospecting enough or how can I help the team do that? Or are average sales prices going down? Why is that? Okay, who has a really high average sales price? What are they doing that's different? How can I teach that to the team? Who is the best at prospecting? How can I go to them? And so it all starts with the data and monitoring that and being really data driven and know that what gets measured gets managed in that respect. Then I use the data from chorus or from the other things that we've pulled to see who has the most one call closes on the team and how are they doing that? How can they teach the team to do that? And so it, start with the data, look at what's going, what's going wrong, do I want to fix the things that are going poorly, or do I want to try to capitalize on the things that are doing well? Hey, in some reps, their love language, as it were, is not, they'd rather die than present to the team. So sometimes they'll just play a recording of them on the call. It's recorded, of course. And sometimes that does the speaking, but generally salespeople are extroverted and want to talk to the team. And and most of us want that public recognition. And, and so I can give them that recognition. They want to be part of the spotlight. So 80% of them want to do that. And, and. That's how I find the reps that do that. And then we come up with a presentation and we get the call clips and then we all listen to them in an hour. and We do that every single week. And then the team just get better and better and better at selling by picking the brain of the best sellers that are good at certain things and letting the data do the the guiding.
0: And it sounds like this ties back to where when you were talking about playing jazz drums before where you're learning different styles, you're hearing different recordings and being taught by the person who's the best at this particular skill within the sales organization. But you did that as a drummer and then as a seller where you were picking pieces from different people. You're enabling a culture that allows the rest of your team to do that. What impact does that have on the culture and the culture's idea about what's possible?
1: I want a culture that is collaboratively competitive. We all want everyone to crush quota, but we all wanna be the best on the team and balance those two. So create a culture where we'll never hide top tracks or great emails or great turns of phrase or the great collateral that someone's created that can visually represent how we can solve the problems or these things like that. I never want that to happen. And yeah, making sure that's a a culture where the team is encouraged to do that. It's also like, I I try to challenge each of the salespeople to think about what they're really good at and what they might want to teach the team. And it's just fun way because if they, lots of people on the team that are individual sellers want to be managers, so we try them out to have them guide conversation and get a discussion going about different aspects of sales and how we can get really good at that. I will say, Hey, to every new hire, Hey, the top 10 sellers at Zoom Info, they all sell very differently. They all have a very different, authentic voice, but they know what that is. But it's not like we're just cranking out the same kinds of sellers. I think there are some companies that do that and we don't, but what's nice about that is there is a landscape of peaks on the hall of fame of sales here at Zoom Info. and you can find what peak matches the way that you want to sell and then listen to every single one of those people's calls. And we've seen that over and over. The best reps just get obsessed with, the up and coming reps get obsessed with the best reps. And we'll just consume every call as they do. They'll look at all the follow-up emails. They'll see it all. And they can see it all on Salesforce and Chorus. And so they'll get obsessed about that and emulate them. I could listen to every recording Carter Beaufort from Dave Matthews has ever done. And I could try to play everything. It's note for note, but it's still going to come out like me. It's not yeah. going to be exactly identical to him. And that's valuable so that other people can see that, oh, there's this other really great seller with their own unique voice. I'll listen to them and try to pick up one to three things every time I listen to a call and then implement it. It's tougher to hold people accountable for that. So obviously we want to manage the best sellers that are self-motivated. So there are some like activity metrics of things. And then there are in the one-on-ones you can say, okay, which calls did you listen to? What did you gather? You have to send me a recording of you implementing this. The other aspect of it is that I think is really valuable is this concept of role-playing. So there's one story I remember we were talking about storytelling. And I went into my VP's office. This was like six years ago. And he said, Hey, Steve, what story are you going to tell on your next call? And I said, oh, I'm going to tell the story about a company called IGEL. And he said, all right, let's hear it. And I was just like, oh no, that's awkward. You're worse in your office. I don't want to do that. And he said, Steve, tell me the damn story. So I was like, okay. So I told him the story and he goes, Steve, that sucked. Do it again. I did it one more time. He was like, that was way better. Just do it one more time to lock it in. So told him the story again. He's like, perfect. Go tell it on your next call. And it was a follow-up call where I had talked to an individual contributor and I was getting to power and opening it up with the CEO. And I just said, hey, before we dive in, there's this story of a company that reminds me of you. And it was the CEO of that company. When I tell you that story in about two minutes, he said, no, I'd love to hear it. And I told this story and knocked it out of the park because I had practiced it and role-played it beforehand. Then I came in with a plan and I rose to the level of my... VP's expectations. I didn't rise to the occasion. And he said, wow, that's a really compelling story. And then I closed them for about two X when I thought I was going to coming into the call, all because I started off with the most powerful invention in human history, which is the story. And that can apply to any aspect of sales. It's it's nice to learn who's the best seller at a certain thing, but if we can't get the reps to translate it and actually apply it, it's all for naught. And role-playing is one of the really valuable ways to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, I love that. So if our listeners are thinking about, okay, I want to do the things that Steve's talking about. I want to elevate the sellers that have the best skills so that they can teach the rest of my team, make their recordings available to the rest of my team. I want my team to be in a place where they're practicing and role-playing and improving their skills and doing it in their own authentic way. What are the things that they should be thinking about when they're implementing that in order to do it well?
1: All of us have our New Year's resolutions and our goals. And uh, one of my favorite sellers on the team named Cole... He said, losers have goals and winners have systems. And I agree with him. Uh, I don't think that losers have goals. I do think systems are much better. And if we can create a system and stick to it, like a recurring meeting that we're always prepared for, or every Monday, we're always looking at the exact same data as the team where our North Star is, that will reveal where we should be focusing our efforts in terms of, do we need to fix the things that are going poorly? Do we need to emphasize the things that are going well and get better at them. And, and then all of us marching to the same drummers, we're committing to those things. It's that system. It's that repeatable process that makes it all work. That said, I think it would be, I'm really surprised if someone tried this. And for some reason, the sales team pushed back, I suppose there are places where everyone is just like out for themselves and they all just want to do their own things and they won't share what's working and they won't collaborate. Maybe that's, that is something that happens in different sales teams when if so I, I don't really want to be a part of it. And so it's like a, a red flag as if you try to start to do these things and the sales teams really push back, you've got a significant cultural problem that you either need to work hard to fix over time, or maybe you need to be part of a different sales team. I would say just try it and think it, and it should be obvious as you just look at your roster on your team and you think, what are these people really good at? If not, just ask each sales rep individually, get a list of what you think they're good at, and then think, okay, which one do I want to teach to the team and just start there. Probably the easiest way to go about it.
0: And what could go wrong? What should people watch out for to make sure that they don't do as they're trying to do that?
1: You know, the phrase, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You can tend to over rotate on the skills that we recognize people for, as an example. One of my reps just, he was closing two and a half times more, one call closes than anyone else at our average sale cycle is like nine or 10 days long. It's about 20 K HCV. So it's very transactional, but it's usually not just one call. Usually it takes two or three in that period of time, but he was just so good at that. And so I was like, wow, this is incredible. He's drawing a bigger circle around what's possible. Let's recognize this rep for that. And then. It turned out that he just would then try to one call everything. So he's like, I'm the one call guy. That's what I'm good at. And then I want the team to recognize me because I'm so good. And it's just, that's a valuable thing to be able to do, but you also don't want to over rotate and try to force people to make a decision when they don't want to in a way that's counterproductive. The worst example would be like, if you recognize someone on the team for their technical expertise, and then they just start. Product dumping about all the different technical aspects of the problem that they forget to sell, then they can over rotate as to what their like superpower is. I think we have to keep in mind that yes, you may be the best or on the team or very good at this one thing, but you can't over rotate. The other is a uh, sort of jealousy, I think, or MD that happens on the team when the manager or director or VP can be seen to have favorites. And they're always going back to the one person that's the best rep. And then they go, it's teacher's pet. Again, their favorite person. I think we have to manage the egos on the team that we spread that around to different folks. There's some tension that happens when, if there's a rep that's only been here for two or three months, but they're just crushing and they bring in a skill from outside of the org. There's a tension that happens with the sales reps and they go, oh my God, this new rep is so much better. Than i am at this thing and i've been here for 18 months but that's good i think that's a uh, yeah we need to keep people on their toes when they're either going to sink or they're going to swim yeah. but most people are going to react in a good way to that and be inspired by a new person it's just it's to use the musical analogy again it's like sometimes you see someone who's so good at music it makes you want to give up and if you're in that headspace probably take a break come back and do it again maybe you'll be inspired i feel like it's the same way and Sometimes the right feet aren't in the right shoes, and we have to make some tough decisions and move them to a different place in the org or trade them to another team. But I I do think that tension that comes from recognizing people that are maybe younger or have been here less time lights a fire under the right team members, and the right ones will get inspired by that.
0: Great stuff, Steve. To wrap us up here today, just when we think about all the things in our conversation today, what are the two or three things that our guests should leave? in terms of the the pillars of building a collaboratively competitive culture?
1: I think it's just to add a few things. I think when I look for people that'll be part of that culture, I want those that are a joy to work with, that work really hard and have a lot of like cerebral horse, you can't be dumb and then be good at selling here at least. And so if I can recognize that second one, how gritty someone is that we can't teach. And so in the interview process, I'll ask, Show me examples of when you've exercised grit in your personal life and professional life. And I wanted to tell really compelling stories and sell me on that. The next is to not have all the answers and lean on the strengths of your team. And then you get this, that flywheel effect of the confidence of the seller. And then all the sellers getting better. It's not to dominate the conversation when we're teaching that, but to actually encourage a discussion and let people ask questions and to get in the nuances of how that rep is thinking about the thing that they're so good at where their mindset is at when they're doing that and let the individual reps ask questions about those components. And then I would say be relentlessly positive and show appreciation for those people, whether they want it in private or they want it publicly. That recognition and that momentum, when somebody's got the hot hand, get them the ball, let your shooter shoot. And in the same way, that's what we should do when we're trying to create an elite sales team if you have an average sales team you can make them a leech just by constantly trying to improve how they're selling holding them accountable and then doing that role playing even though it's uncomfortable so the only other thing i would add is like i would encourage them to let this do the let them do this outside of your view if they can be inspired to do this themselves and have their own sort of call coaching club or their own kind of feedback mechanism where they're, hey, can you proofread this email or hey, I created this custom deck for my next sales call. Can you go over and something you would add, creating that kind of culture and let them do that independent of me or the directors or the sales managers, that's going to unlock so much more. And that's going to be a, a place where it's a joy to work, where everyone's crossing on numbers, where they're never going to leave and sales nirvana. So I would encourage everybody to think about doing those things and just try it and then you know if they have questions about how i'm doing it or how i think about it you know i always respond to every single message i get on linkedin so they can find me there and i'm happy to let them pick my brain about that kind of stuff and the mistakes i've made or nuances or different questions or techniques so they can always reach out to me there
0: an additional takeaway that i have is i I love what you talked about in terms of creating this environment of this is what good looks like and we're going to teach it but then making sure that people understand that they do that in their own authentic voice. And I think that carries over to leaders as well. And I think one of the one of the reasons that you transitioned from not being a strong leader early on to being a great leader is that you learned that you have to lead with your own authenticity. And I think that's something that I learned well. So that's a takeaway for me from today's. You already mentioned people can find you on LinkedIn, Steve Waters, if you enjoyed the show, Please leave us a review in your favorite podcast player, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well at LucasPrice or yardstick.team. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today on Building Elite Sales Teams. Please remember to give us a five-star review. And if you want more information about Yardstick, you can find us at www.yardstick.team. You can follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn by searching for Lucas Price.